You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. If you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to finish up this morning our five uh, prophecies in the book of Matthew concerning the birth of Jesus. Um, This is the story, really. Uh, Most of these prophecies are quoted after the birth of Jesus or having to do in the narrative with after Jesus was already born. And so we've been looking at those um, together. And certainly there was concern within the story. You know the story of King Herod and his jealousy of Jesus, this newborn king, and a desire to worship him, really kill him. And, uh, and so he goes on this whole quest with the wise men to try to find King Jesus. And at the end of the day, uh, he fails miserably. And here we find Mary and Joseph in Egypt kind of waiting the whole thing out. In the midst of that, Matthew wants to draw our attention again and again and again to several things that were promised in the Old Testament concerning the birth of Christ. And and so we've been walking through those five different ones together. And uh, just as a way of reminder, let me just remind you that part of the deal, the reason why we're doing this is because like Israel, there should be a certain sense in which we have an expectation of Messiah King Jesus. Yes, Jesus has already come. Amen? Jesus has already come. Praise God. We have a Savior, and His name is Christ the Lord. We celebrate Him every year. Praise the Lord for that, both at Christmas and Easter. But there is a certain sense in which we expect or should expect the presence of God in the person of Christ by His Holy Spirit in our lives every single day. The Spirit of Christ among us. And beyond that, an expectation to, to anticipate Jesus coming again for His church. So there ought to be an expectation among God's people that He is a man, uh, uh, that He is a, a, a person of his, prom, of his Word, that He keeps His Word to His people. There, there should be that among us, and we should expect His presence among us every single day. So the prophecies in Matthew are designed both to demonstrate who Jesus is, but also to remind us that He keeps his promises. Five of them so far. Just in case you're just joining us at the tail end of this, let me just do a quick review of the five of them for you. Isaiah chapter 7, we saw the Son who is to be born. His name would be Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. He would be born of a virgin, and his kingdom would have no end. In spite of an evil King Ahaz, good King Jesus, perfect King Jesus, was coming. And the promise that we should take away is that God will never ultimately abandon his people. Isaiah chapter 7. Then we looked at Micah chapter 5. Little, insignificant, small, tiny Bethlehem. The place where you never would have thought the Savior would come and yet 
here he was born, born of a virgin named Mary and laid in swaddling clothes there in Bethlehem in a, in a manger. And the promise of Micah, who is an insignificant prophet at, at larger view of the Old Testament anyway, in Bethlehem being the least significant, this is where Jesus would come. And it's a reminder to us that God often chooses the weak, insignificant people or places to make known his power and to accomplish his purpose for his glory. Profound truth. Then we turn to, uh, to Jeremiah, rather, chapter 31, the message of the weeping prophet, one who, who shed tears over the people of Israel because of their spiritual condition. Remember, it is like Rachel weeping over her children because they are no more. And the reminder to us that the gospel is not sad news. It is good news. Good news, Brother Curtis. Amen. Of great joy, which shall be to all people who trust in Christ for salvation. Jeremiah 31, the promise of great joy. And then Hosea 11, where we were last week, the prophet who not only announced his message, but actually displayed his message in his marriage, in his marriage to the adulteress Gomer. How the people of God were continually unfaithful to God, and yet it is God who would remain a faithful husband to them. And out of Egypt, out of spiritual bondage, He would redeem them and redeem us. And it is because God has an unrelenting, redeeming love for His people. You see how prophecy just makes our understanding of Christmas bulge with truth and theology. All of these things... Emmanuel, birth in Bethlehem, joy, redemption from Egypt, all of these things were ultimately pointing forward to Jesus. And now we've seen Him. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so that brings us to this last prophecy, which is a little bit different, a little bit unique among them as Matthew brings this period or this section of prophecy to a close. So let me invite you to stand with me and honor the reading of God's Word as we read from Matthew chapter 2, begin with me in verse 19. The Bible says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you will help us as we look at this passage to see in the Old Testament what it is that you would have us to know about Jesus. God, help our eyes that are blind and our hearts that are distant from your word to be opened, to see and to feel the message of this passage. I pray that it would transform our lives. God, if there is someone here who's never trusted in Jesus as King, Lord of their life, as Savior, I pray that this would be the day. God, may they surrender to Jesus as their Lord and Savior with all that they are. 
And Lord, I pray that you would encourage the saved and remind us of who Jesus is and what he's promised us and help us to anticipate Christ in this way that we see in this passage for 2020 and beyond. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So this passage is a little bit different. Uh, there is a unique nature to it that you'll see in just a moment. Um, and because it's unique, we see in this passage, really, instead of a bunch of things about Jesus, we really see only one major thing about Jesus, something that we should all know and something that should not uh, we shouldn't walk away from and think lightly of. In fact, this may be the the very truth that reigns above all of them. And and I think that this truth is primary in Matthew's purpose for writing his gospel, if we understand it rightly. And so what we're going to do this morning is to, to dig it up. There's there's a lot of work to be done to see what is being taught in this passage but I think that when you see it, it is profound. And then what I want to do after we see that truth is to give you five primary applications of that truth in your life for 2020 as we move forward this year. So it's going to take a little work to get there. So hang with me. Y'all, can you all do that this morning? Hang with me through the background work of the passage. Let's turn it up. All right. So the story, what is going on here in the passage? Well, Mary and Joseph have been in Egypt. We know that. And they have been hiding out from Pharaoh. They did that not because they were just fearful, but because the, the angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said, go to Egypt. So he's doing this in obedience to God. And they've been in Egypt. We don't know how long ultimately they were there, but there is, there's coming a, a time whenever Herod dies. We can kind of calculate it based on that, but that's beside the point. The point is, once Herod died, the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and he says, OK, I want you to now leave Egypt and go back to Israel. And the Bible tells us that Joseph obeyed that. So Herod had tricked the wise men. He was furious. He wanted to kill Jesus ultimately couldn't do that. And so he set out to kill all of the male children under two, by the way, in Bethlehem. And so in, in, and not just in Bethlehem, the Bible actually says in the surrounding region. So all over the place. And so he wanted to kill them. He was unsuccessful. Now he dies. And this angel says it's safe to go. Rise and take the child. He says there. Rise and take the child as his, and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now in that day, Israel probably properly would have been understood as Jerusalem and Judah, that surrounding area. But not all of the extent like we think of the land of Israel. So they are, in essence, headed to Jerusalem. And, and I think that there is some symbolism there that we cannot ignore. If you're looking at this carefully, Joseph, who obeyed God and went to Egypt, is there in Egypt and now leaves Egypt and is headed back to Jerusalem in obedience to God, to the land of Israel. By the way, it's one of the only places that we have that phrase, the land of Israel. And the picture, I think, is very clear for us that, that there is a parallel between the life of Moses and leading his people out of Egypt and now Joseph leading his family, Jesus now being the son that comes out of Egypt to lead his people to redemption. I think that there is a clear parallel there, but it's at best something that we pick up on subtly. There is a application for us not to the land, but to the condition of the people 
And so the redemption that's taking place there. And so the text tells us, goes on to tell us that the son of Herod, uh, the one that was that was reigning after him, Archelaus, was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod. He was the same kind of ruler, by the way, because it says that 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 uh, that that Joseph was afraid to go back. And we know this kind of fear in the life of our families. We want to go live in a safe place, right? It's the same kind of fear. And so Joseph, in fear, yes, did not go to Jerusalem, but he ultimately was commanded again. He was warned in a dream, the Bible says, to not go. So he withdrew from the district of Galilee and he went or to the district of Galilee, rather. And he went to a city called Nazareth, just above Israel, just above Jerusalem proper. Stopping short of redemption. And I think that that again paints a picture. Stopping short of going back to the primary city because it's ultimately Jesus who could lead His people to ultimate redemption. We have that narrative over and over. Stopping short of ultimate redemption. And so they come to Nazareth. Galilee is of course where Jesus spent most of His ministry. This is where Nazareth was. And and we can speculate there um, we can speculate as to why uh, Jesus ultimately goes there, but I think there's some very clear pictures in the passage. Galilee, uh, being where Jesus spent his ministry, now became the home of Mary and Joseph. Now, I've been to the town of Nazareth. Today, if you were to go to the town of Nazareth, it is the largest city in the northern part of Israel. 80,000 some odd people live in Nazareth today. It's the Arab capital of the world. It's 15 miles west of the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. And so if you're kind of just trying to place it there on a map, that's where it is. So it's, it's a significant place today. But in the Bible, it was not significant. If you go to Nazareth, you'll find today Joseph's workshop, or at least the place that they believe that it is. But the town in the New Testament day was small. Most estimate that it was anywhere from two to four hundred people, but at most five hundred people in that day. Simple farmers. Maybe you think about it. We pastored before we came here. We pastored in a little town called Kinston, Alabama. Population 700. Almost everybody there were farmers. A similar kind of a place, but smaller geographically. Two to four hundred people, maybe five hundred But there were farmers and tradesmen. There was nothing spectacular about Nazareth. Why would Jesus be uh, take up residence? Why would he see fit that that would be his home? It's not only insignificant in its size. We already saw that in Bethlehem. Remember, small town, small Bethlehem, old little Bethlehem. But one layer added to this, I think that Nazareth was most likely despised or looked poorly upon. Bethlehem was ignored as if it didn't even exist, but Nazareth was known. And I I think really looked poorly upon. If you read John chapter 1, Jesus calling His disciples, and there were two that Jesus called, one by the name of Philip, one by the name of Nathaniel or Bartholomew. Bartholomew, you'll remember the story. And so when Jesus found Philip, He told him, follow me. But Philip was the one who went and got Nathanael and said to him, and watch this, watch what he says, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. One of the only places he's described that way. 
the son of Joseph. And verse 46, here's Nathanael's response. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Didn't have a great reputation. It wasn't anything spectacular. And I think they were really scoffed at. And this is where Joseph chose to take up residence under the leadership of God himself. So it's insignificant in biblical times. Here's the clincher. Matthew says that this is prophecy, but if you read your Old Testament and you are familiar at all, you will never see the city of Nazareth mentioned in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament. And that should at at very least cause curiosity, at least cause some sense of alarm. Matthew, why were you describing this to be something spoken by the prophets that might be fulfilled in Jesus being called the Nazarene? This is not an unfamiliar way for Matthew to begin his prophecies. In fact, we've seen all of them. If you just kind of look back over this with me, first chapter, the first prophecy we looked at, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 5. For so it is written by the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 14. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Chapter 2, verse 17. This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Unmistakable theme of fulfillment. If you look all throughout Matthew, unmistakably, he wants us to see that Jesus is the one of promise. But chapter 2 and verse 23 is slightly different. Read it with me. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Did you catch it? He didn't say prophet this time. He said prophets. And just in case you think maybe that's some sort of a scribal error, it's all in the best manuscripts to make this plural. It makes sense that he would say the prophets because you can't identify one particular prophet. But more than that, it makes sense that's in a hugely significant way because none of the prophets said this. But all of the prophets made a reference to Jesus that is similar to the city of Nazareth. And what's also interesting here is when he says that he's from Nazareth, he doesn't say like Egypt, he doesn't call him an Egyptian like Bethlehem. He doesn't call him a Bethlehemite, but here he calls him a Nazarene. It's an adjective that describes Jesus. What in the world is Matthew showing us? Well, if you do a little bit of digging, you'll find out that the root of this word Nazareth has two different roots of possibility. One is the word Nazarite, and you think about the word Nazarite vow. It describes someone who has taken an an oath and they've forsaken things, they're restraining themselves, and some have applied that to Jesus. And In fact, an entire denomination is built off of that today, the the church of the Nazarene. Entire church, and some would say that this is is for, uh, for priests to take a Nazarite vow. And yet we don't see anyone in the New Testament or Old Testament except for Samson and for Samuel taking that vow. And Jesus is less like any of those or less like either of those than he is like the second root. The second root, which the prophets do talk about, that means root 
or shoot or sprout. So this sprout or shoot, Jesus will be called like a sprout, a Nazarene. That would make far more sense. Why would that make much more sense? Well, if you go back to the prophets, and we could go all over the place, but go to just one. Just one. Isaiah chapter 11. You can turn there if you like. But mark this down. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Here is the prophecy. There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a sprout, that's the word that's used, in the Hebrew, will blossom. It's clearly a Messianic text. We know that there's coming forth from Jesse, ultimately then from David, from the house and lineage of David, would come this one. And who is this shoot? He is none other than the Messianic king that was promised of Israel. Jesus being born in Nazareth and being called a Nazarene was a, listen to this carefully, a constant reminder that Jesus was the promised son of David from the house and lineage of David. And isn't that the theme of Matthew? Chapter 1, you read his lineage, it points to him as king. David's the king Messiah. Means he's king. Matthew's point is that he would be called an Nazarene. He would be called king. And by the way, not just consistent with the lineage, it's consistent with all of Matthew's purpose for him to be understood to be the king. All throughout Matthew, you see it. King Jesus, the kingdom of God, over and over and over again. I think that what Matthew has done is shown us this trail of prophecies leading up to one final moment where he says, and by the way, Not only has he been born in all of these ways, but Jesus is the king of kings. And in that, we have an astounding truth for us. And that is that if Jesus is the king of promise, he is, in fact, the king of promise. And he is the ruler of all of life. Not just the nation of Israel. But if Jesus is the Nazarene, the king, the shoot of Jesse, if he is that king, that means that he is not just king of his ethnic people, Israel, but that he is king of all people. Something critical for us to get here. They did not expect him to come out of Nazareth. Remember? They expected him to come to Jerusalem. I mean, think about it. Palm Sunday, Jesus comes riding and they, they cry out, Hosanna. They, they believe that this is their King Messiah who's coming to bring Israel back to political significance in the world. To restore them to the place of prosperity. And yet moments later, Jesus is arrested. And days later, Jesus is in the grave. Crucified. This is not the King that they expected. Even the disciples who come, who, who walk with Jesus closely and heard everything that He said, everything that He taught, even teaching on His crucifixion and resurrection, the disciples in Acts chapter 1 say, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? There was this belief that Jesus would come out of the greatest place, from the highest place of authority, but this is not where Jesus was home at. Jesus came out of Nazareth. And John chapter 1 says, can anything good 
come out of Nazareth. When Jesus is declared to be king and ruler of all of life, it's a reminder to us coming out of Nazareth that he's not just king over his people, he's king over all people. And by the way, listen to this closely. Come in close for this. Jesus is king even in the places where he would seem most insignificant and even in places where he is most despised. Jesus is king in even those places where he would seem most insignificant and most despised. It is huge for us to get that this morning. Because that means that Jesus is king not just in one area of our lives. But Jesus is king in every single area of your life. And in every life on the planet. Jesus is king. Not just Savior. He's king. So let me ask you this morning. Are you fully Surrendered to King Jesus in every area of your life. When you sing how marvelous, how wonderful. When you sing about the love of Jesus, has that love penetrated every part of your life to the point that you bow the knee completely and fully to King Jesus. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Do you stand amazed in that presence? Is He King in your marriage? Husbands, whenever you Seek to obey Him, trying to be a husband in your life. Is He King whenever you love your wife? Have you submitted, surrendered to to His rule and reign in your heart such that you love your wife as Christ loved the church every single day of your life and do it in honor of Jesus? Is that what's happening in in your life? Is He King there? Wives, is He King whenever you... Submit to the leadership, to the godly leadership of your husband as he tries to lead you as Christ would lead you. Do you submit to him as submitting to Christ and honoring Jesus with your life? It's a king there. Parents, mothers, fathers, as you strive together to raise children, is he king in your home when you raise your children? Have you surrendered the, the raising of your children to Christ? Do you raise them in a way that would honor the Lord? Do you, do you even speak to them and discipline them in ways that would honor the Lord? Is He king over your parenting? Is He king over your finances? Have you submitted your budget this year, the things that you're making goals for to Christ and serving Him with your possessions, with your finances? Do you steward resources well? Are you a slave to debt? Are you trying to position your life that you're going to honor God with all of your finances? Is He king there? And we could go on and on, couldn't we? Is He king in your career? Is He king in your call, whatever your life purpose is? What has God called you to? Are you submitted to that? Is He king in your mission? Serving in His kingdom as a witness? Making disciples? Is your life sold out for the cause of Christ in making disciples of those around you and 
going to the ends of the earth or at least giving and praying toward the ends of the earth? Life goals this year, as you think about New Year's goals, have you made any goals this year? I I don't even want to use the word resolution. I hesitate in that because we so often break New Year's resolutions in the first day or two, week, month. How many of you kept your New Year's resolution from last year? Some of one of us in the room. Good job, Ashley. How many of you have made spiritual goals this year? What are some of the things that you want to do and be committed to in your life? And have you even thought in that? See, when Jesus is king, right? Every area of our life. And not just those things, but in our emotions, fear, worry, doubt. In our thoughts, what we meditate on, what we think on. Every part of our life, not just a small part. If this prophecy is true, it means that there is a new king on the throne of your life. And you can no longer rule your life. Jesus reigns on that throne. That's what this means. We're not at the center anymore. Christ is at the center. And so what ways in your life have you identified that Jesus is not king? Areas that have not bowed the knee to Jesus. Maybe areas of your life where you're living in disobedience and you know it. Maybe areas you don't know. Areas that you've been making excuses. Oh, I'll obey God one day in that area of my life and and maybe 2020 is the year. Or maybe it's not. You've got another year ahead of you or maybe you don't. What areas are you making excuses for? What areas have you justified? That's no big deal. God's not too concerned about that. Come up with some other reason why it can be okay. Areas you're ignoring. You just kind of put them away out of your mind. Maybe some areas you've even forgotten about that God spoke to you about a long time ago and you've not done anything with. And it's been so long that you don't even think about it consciously daily. Maybe areas you've barricaded off. God's not allowed in those spaces. I don't know about the case, or I don't know about the, the situations in your life, what the cases are. But as you think about the coming year, how in your life are you going to dedicate your life to the King and the kingdom of God, King Jesus and His will in the world and certainly in your life? What needs to be surrendered? And by the way, just drawing one more picture out of this passage for us. To submit to King Jesus. And, and, and I, want to, I want you to hear this this morning. Maybe this is liberating for you. To submit to King Jesus is not an oppressive thing. <laughs> Oftentimes religion, quote unquote, or church is made out to be like some kind of Nazarite vow, right? Where we've got to withdraw and abstain from things that we really love and we w- really wish we'd had, but now we gotta, we gotta follow Jesus and it's some kind of duty without any kind of delight. Like some kind of legalistic thing. But don't miss the question again of Philip to Nathaniel. Rather, vice versa, the response of Philip. But the question from Nathaniel to Philip was this. Can anything good come out of Nazareth. And what was the response? Philip goes, come and see. (laughs) Why? Because Philip had come to the realization that everything he had to sacrifice, surrender, any sense of giving up things was now a delight. 
Because he's found in Jesus the greatest thing he could ever know. This is why this is not torturing yourself or or finding some way to, to not enjoy life. Because when we come to faith in Jesus, we realize the joy that we never knew. When we, when we surrender to the King, we realize that all of our ways and all of our paths in life were leading to destruction. They were robbing us of the joy that God created us to have in Him. And in reality, when we surrender our lives to Him, all of a sudden, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. I'm not going to tell you on this stage, it would be a lie to tell you that every day was full of butterflies and rainbows. But there is sorrow even in those days. There is great hope. There is joy that is unquenchable in knowing Christ. I want you to hear that this morning. So don't think surrendering to Jesus is like like coming to some prison in shackles. To be enslaved to Christ is to be enslaved to the greatest treasure you could ever know. It is to give up what we could never really have. To gain what we can never lose. And so I want to urge you this morning with five different applications that you would surrender to King Jesus. Number one, that you would surrender to the salvation of King Jesus. You know, some days I, I, I go home, some Sundays, and I, I just go home and I, and I wonder, either because maybe we had someone here that I didn't know very well or Maybe because I, I knew that, that we have people that have been going to church all their lives and I've just never heard their testimony. I, I go home as a pastor and I, I lose sleep over this. I wonder how many people sit in these pews every week and hear the gospel proclaim that Jesus Christ died on a cross for you and He's raised to life and that all hope, any hope, can only be found in Him by believing upon Christ trusting in Him. I wonder how many of us have heard that message and believe it to be true and yet have in some sense this intellectual knowledge of the truth of the Gospel, but it's never impacted our lives. Never believed it personally. It's never transformed you. And I I just want to make this plea to you this morning and I would urge you, Christian, to make this plea with everyone you meet this coming year. Would you surrender to salvation in King Jesus? Salvation doesn't come just by Jesus being Savior, the one who died a death that we didn't that he didn't deserve, that we fully deserve. That's not the whole story. Salvation is submitting our lives to the King of kings and Lord of lords and being changed by Him and giving everything over to Him because He did not stay in the grave. He rose again the third day. And He's seated on the throne. You can't just get Jesus as Savior and then go on doing what you think you could do before. And you can't submit to this cultural view of Jesus that says, I believe all of the facts of the the Gospel, all the facts of the crucifixion and resurrection, and yet never be transformed by its power. You must trust in Jesus personally and fully. And it is in that moment that we are born again and we're saved and changed forever. And you are never the same. And so would you, would you surrender to King Jesus today? In just a few moments, we're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to invite you to come. After we get done with these other four, I'm going to invite you to come. 
and say to me, Pastor, today I want to trust in Jesus. I'm going to surrender to King Jesus personally in my life today for the first time. And the promise of God is that you'll be saved. Quickly, Christian, four other things. I want you to hear these. Number two, surrender to the authority of King Jesus. The authority. If He's King, He's not just the fulfillment of promise. He's ultimate authority. In other words, I must bow the knee to Christ. Every part of my life is under the authority of Jesus. My marriage, my parenting, my home, my, my career, my finances, everything that I am and have is under the authority of Jesus. There is no secular, sacred divide. Everything that I have is now sacred. It belongs to Jesus. Everything. Surrender to His authority. Third, surrender to the Word of King Jesus. How do we know what His positional authority requires of us? By looking at His Word. Some of you have never read the Bible for yourself. You've heard preachers talk about it. You've heard Sunday school teachers, connect group leaders teach it. But you have never read the Bible yourself from beginning to end or very much at all. Some of you know verses because you think you memorized verses as a kid and come to find out if you get into your Bible, you discover those weren't Bible verses at all. <laughs> They're just trite sayings that you memorize that may or may not be true. Get into God's word. It is God's Word that bears authority. Some of you need to set a reading plan for this year. Some of you need to set a plan to memorize some Scripture. I did a horrible job at trying to quote Scripture Christmas Eve. Just absolutely botched it. But you hide God's Word in your heart that you might not sin against God. Third, uh, rather fourth, surrender to the reign of King Jesus. What do I mean by that? Not just the authority, the rule. Yes, He's King. He's King of your life. But Christian, don't forget that He's not just King of your life. He's King of all lives. Maybe everybody on the planet has not said, I want to be uh, in submission to the Lordship of Jesus. But listen to this carefully. We do not make Jesus King. Jesus is King. By very essence of His personhood, He is King. King of kings and Lord of lords. No one makes Jesus King. We simply submit to His being King. So that means that your neighbor who encroached upon your land this year and built a fence where they shouldn't have built a fence and took some of your property and you're mad and upset about it and you think it's wrong and it's not just that Jesus is king over that whole deal. And that means that some leader in our government that did something you thought was foolish or even ungodly, that Jesus is king over that leader. You know what that means? That means not only that I should bow the knee, I must bow the knees of Jesus, I must also trust Him. I must trust Him. Because as much as He's ruling and reigning in my life, He's ruling and reigning over His universe. And God is working all things together for the good of those that love God and that are the called according to His purpose. I don't have to doubt, fear, worry. You submit that to the rule and reign of Jesus. And fourth, Christian, you should surrender the authority, the word, the reign of King Jesus and to the return of King Jesus. He's coming again. Don't think that you can just go on living your life with plenty of time to spare and like nothing about the kingdom of God matters right now. One day you'll take it all seriously, maybe on your deathbed, maybe whenever you get old and retire and you can go on missions. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Or maybe some of you are just delaying for some other reason. But no, no, Jesus is returning soon. 
He's coming again and we ought to be faithful to the mission every single moment of our lives, every breath that we take, every every place that we live, every possession that we have, every plan that we make, all of these things, all of them, all of them are preparing for the bridegroom to come for the bride. We want to be a bride prepared for our groom. And the Holy Spirit is doing some amazing things in us and through us for the sake of King Jesus. And so may we surrender to the return of Jesus. Jesus is king. And if he's king, if he's the king of promise, then he's the king of every life and in every part of every life. And so all of us must bow the knee to King Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning all across the room. And that is our simple invitation. What areas of your life need to be more fully surrendered to Him? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and this altar is going to be open. It's not something that is between me and you. It's not something that's between you and your neighbor, although it's helpful to have connection with others as they hold you accountable. Something that's between you and the Lord right now in this moment. And His call to you is, I'm King. Will you come to me? Yeah, but Jesus, can anything good come out of following you? Why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and see? With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you stand with me? Lord, I pray this morning that as we trust in you as our King, and as you reign perfectly over our lives, Lord, I pray that we would not only confess You as Lord with our lips, but that our lives would reflect the reality that You're King. And God, in all of these areas where we may be weak and strongholds in our life, I pray that You would help us. Help us in our weakness to submit to You. Bring us this morning to the place of repentance. Bring us to the place of faith. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a familiar song to us that's going to be sung. Did you come this morning? Even as head, heads are bowed, eyes are closed across this room, the altar is open. Would you come this morning as we submit to Jesus? Sing one more verse. The altar is open this morning. You come.
shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. God, thank You for that love that You demonstrated for us on the cross even as Your brow was pierced and Your hands were pierced for our sin. God, thank You. Thank You that Jesus is our Savior. And I pray, Lord, if there's one here who's never trusted in Christ, that this would be the day. God, we pray for that. God, draw them to Yourself. Make them restless. Bring them to the place of repentance. Show them Your kindness and Your grace, I pray. Lord, as Christians in this room, I pray that you would stir us again for our King. God, may we live 2020 for your glory and your honor and and your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that there would be incredible things that would take place here at Southwide, not because we've done anything special, but because you, our King, are establishing your kingdom here in Defuniac Springs, and, and we just get to be a part of it. God, thank you for who you are, and thank you for what you're going to do this year both in our lives corporately and individually. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.